If you've seen the movie called National Treasure, remember there's a pretty typical movie, good guys and bad guys looking for national treasure. That's thus the name. And they're following the clues throughout this movie, trying to find this sort of hidden room that has these national treasures in them. And they get to the very end, and the bad guys think they've sort of fooled the good guys, and they run off to where they're sure to find the treasure, but they didn't see one of the clues, and the good guys know that. And then as the bad guys leave, the good guys are stuck in this sort of cavern, and they go through this secret passage And when the passage opens up, they stand on this platform and this huge room opens up and it's full of national treasures. And throughout the movie, you get the feeling it's going to be a big room. But when when they see it, it's just room after room of these rare treasures. You couldn't possibly look in one direction and, and capture it all at the same moment. When you turn to Mark chapter 14 and these 10 verses, it's a treasure. And and the treasures in these 10 verses are so enormous that, that just looking at them at a glance, you couldn't possibly capture everything that's happening in these 10 verses in Mark 14 with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we can't uncover every treasure here. But this morning, I want us to take a look at three or sort of stop along the way here and look at three things that I think come from this text. First, I think when you read this text, you would conclude that the Bible is authentic. When you read through this text, I think one of the things that you could conclude is that the Bible is authentic. The second thing that you see in this text is God's character, both his wrath and his love. And the other thing I want to look at in this passage is how the passage sheds some very helpful light on your prayer life and trusting in God's word. The background of the text, just in case you haven't been with us as we've been preaching through Mark, is that Jesus has finished his last meal, the last supper. He's been in the upper room with his disciples. And together they exit Jerusalem to the east. They walk through the wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And they go into a place called the Mount of Olives. It's, this, it's a, a valley on the east side. And there's a big olive orchard there because uh, olive oil was a commercial product that people used in Jerusalem and still do at that time. And in this big olive grove apparently is a smaller garden. Maybe it's marked off with some boundary or something, but it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, with the eleven disciples minus Judas, who's gone back to begin his betrayal of Jesus, Jesus, with his eleven disciples, reached the Garden of Gethsemane, and eight of the disciples are left at the entrance, and only Jesus and Peter and James and John go further in. The word Gethsemane is a Hebrew word, which means olive press or oil press. And so probably within this garden is a large stone. 
And what would happen is that the people would gather the olives off of the olive trees. They would crack them open. They put them in these baskets, these wicker baskets, and they would stack the baskets one on top of another. They're, they're not very high, and they would stack them up. And they'd take this huge stone, very heavy stone, and they would drop it onto the baskets that are full of olives. And as the weight of the stone just began to compress the olives, the oil would be pressed out and they would collect the oil. And so you see what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane is this huge stone is being set on somebody and something's being pressed out. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. We see that uh, Jesus, in verse 33, he begins, he begins to feel a weight that he's going to bear. He's not feeling the whole weight. He, he's been talking through the book of Mark that he is going to have to suffer and die. But it's sort of like talking about a fire and then beginning to feel the real heat of the fire. The heat now, he's getting terribly close And he feels the weight of what he alone must bear. When you read through this account, one of the things that you notice just sort of on the face of the the ten verses is that nobody looks very good in these ten verses. You notice that? Peter, James, and John, the the big three, the the inner circle, the three that went into Jairus' daughter's house, or Jairus' house where his daughter was, and and watched Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from from death. The, The big three that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The big three who bragged and made very bold promises about what they could accomplish on their own. If you look back in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, we see James and John. They come up to Jesus and they are making a request. And they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink that cup? And they said to him, verse 39, we are able. They have no idea what they're asking. But they boldly come up and say, we are able, whatever it takes to get into power, we want that. And we're able to get into that position on our own ability. You know about Peter, Mark 14, verses 29 through 31. Jesus has predicted everybody's going to scatter. Here he's up in the upper room. Hey, you're all going to leave me. And And Peter tries to take sort of a blood oath. Even if I have to die, I will will not deny you, Peter says. And yet we come to these ten verses and half the passage is is dedicated to highlighting the weakness of these big three. 
the hour of Jesus' greatest need, when he brings the big three into the Garden of Gethsemane, no practically no cost to themselves. All he's asking is if for one hour they could stay awake and pray. No cup here, nothing difficult, not having to die. Just, hey guys, how about just one hour? Can you just stay awake one hour? And what do you find about the big three? They're all asleep. One commentator writes this, The hour had come and the disciples are found snoozing. They fail miserably. A nameless woman anoints Jesus for his burial. A bystander carries his cross. A pagan centurion makes a public confession that Jesus is the Son of God. A Jewish council member buries Jesus in his tomb. Women followers watch him die on the cross. By contrast, the disciples doze while he shudders in horror. They betray him. They flee for their lives. They do not keep watch, but fall asleep. So on the face of it, when we look at the big three, when we look at the leaders of the early church, they don't look so good. And we have to admit, on the face of it, the leader himself, Jesus, he doesn't look so good. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been the picture of calm, the, the picture of control. Remember in Mark chapter 4, and the, the, they're out on, out on the Sea of Galilee, and the winds break open, and the, the waves are crashing over the ship, and, and the, the disciples are desperately struggling, and they finally just say, we can't get it done, let's go find Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? Biting his nails, hoping they get... No. He's completely calm. He's so comfortable where he is, he's fallen asleep in the middle of the storm. When when a restless crowd of 5,000 who've been hearing the teacher for a few days begin to get hungry, before anything breaks open like a mob scene, what does Jesus do? He feeds them. When Jesus finds Legion, the man with a thousand demons. He calms the storms in Legion's life. When he faces the Pharisees in Mark chapter 12, where they have one question after another about who he is, he shuts them down. And yet when we get here, Jesus facing his own death, he's staggering. And Mark even seems to highlight it, just like he does Peter, James, and John. Jesus comes back over and over again. They're asleep. And then Mark tells us the same thing about Jesus over and over again. Listen to the words he uses. Jesus was greatly distressed, which means he was horrified at something that he had seen. He was troubled. And in the Greek, that means something heavy was on him. He even goes to his disciples and says, you know, my soul is so sorrowful right now. I feel like I could just die on the spot. Jesus, who had been the picture of calmness, is staggering. And one commentator said this, it's safe to say that many of Jesus' followers, the early Christians, 
died better than he did. Even those who don't know Jesus, like Socrates in 399 B.C., you remember this story? Socrates has been accused of doing something, and because of that, he's have to be put to death. And what does he have to drink? Remember, a cup of hemlock. And so if you've ever seen the picture, Socrates is sort of sitting on a table. He's instructing this, these distressed followers around him, and he's reaching out to take this cup of hemlock, and he's going to drink it. And in a way to sort of calm his disciples down, he says this, The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways, I to live and you to die. Which is better? God only knows. He faces his own death with a calmness. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm ready to face it. And yet when we come here and we see Jesus, he's staggering. He's falling apart. The reason I point this out to you is that sometimes you'll hear people say something like this. You know, how can you trust the Bible? I mean, it's sort of written after the fact and it was written by the followers and they wrote it a long time later. And of course, they're going to take the stories and sort of exaggerate them or embellish them or they're just sort of legendary. They're going to add in some material that makes them look good, that makes their leader look good. Because we're trying to we're trying to get people to follow after our religion. So we have to put this material in a way that people say, yeah, that's somebody I want to follow. Nobody in any culture would write this about themselves or their leader if they ever hoped anybody would follow them. No Jew, no Roman, no Greek. Nobody wants to follow the very people who are the leaders that are falling asleep and staggering at their own death. It's completely contrary to anything that anybody would make up. So I think when we read through this, we can say, this actually happened. No one would even dare to make this up about the leader. The second thing that we see here is the wrath and the love of God. Since this really happened, we're left with this question. If Jesus is staggering at his own death, why is it that he's falling apart? Why, why is he facing this storm not calmly. I mean, he's not even able to maintain the kind of poise that Socrates maintained at his own death. And the answer is that Jesus is going to drink something much stronger than hemlock. He peers over the edge of a cup. Verse 35 and 36. Abba, Father... This word Abba is a, an, a term of intimacy. Be like saying Daddy. Dad, all things are possible. Take this cup. I don't want it. I've looked over to the edge and I don't want to take this cup. Well, what's in this cup? The Old Testament tells you that the wrath of God is in this cup. There are several verses, Isaiah 51, 
Put it on the front front of your bulletin. Behold, I have taken from you, from your hand, the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You you see, when, when Socrates looks into death, he doesn't know which one is better. But Jesus does know. He begins to feel the heat of God's wrath. And he's not just going to drink a cup that's going to remove him from life. It's going to remove him from God Almighty. William Lane says this so well in his commentary. Let me read it for you. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny. It's not a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who, who lives wholly to the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. If Jesus Christ looks into the cup of eternal separation from God, and he staggers, what must our position be? Sometimes you'll hear this. You know, I'm uncomfortable with God being pictured as a God of wrath. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so I don't think of God as a God of wrath. I think of God as loving. When you hear this, God is a God of love, not of wrath. It sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, there's something attractive about that. But if you think much more past the surface, you realize that it's illogical. It's impossible to have just a God of love who isn't also a God of wrath. You couldn't have those things separated from each other. And I'm sure you understand it because have you ever noticed how angry, loving people can become? I mean, anybody in here have any experience with a very loving person who you can look at right now? And say, I've seen anger come out of those eyes. And you love me the most. At least you say you do. You understand this because loving people get angry precisely because they are loving. In fact, the more loving you are as a person, the greater your capacity for anger. Let me give you an illustration. If someone were to 
come in in my house and attempt to harm my daughter. Or maybe my daughter attempted to harm herself. How would I feel about that? I would feel angry about that. I would get angry about that. If I didn't get angry, what would you accuse me of? If someone came into my house to harm my daughter and I did not get angry, what would you accuse me of? You're not loving. You're apathetic. The fact that you don't exercise any anger at all tells me you don't love me. So it's possible, it's very possible to have a God who is apathetic. But one of the things that's not possible is to have a God who's loving but is not wrathful. You cannot have that one. That doesn't make any sense to anyone. And if you had a God who was loving and looked at this world and the horror of the world in some of your lives and around the globe and did did not get angry, you would not follow after that God. The Bible says God is love, 1 John 4. And one side of that love must include His righteous anger. And the Bible is clear. God's wrath is going to be poured out onto those people who have not followed His commands. And when Jesus sees that wrath, He staggers. And it should make us stagger. However, in John 3.16, we read this. For God so loved. What did he love? He loved the world. He looked down on his creation who's in rebellion against him. And he looks down and says, That's, those are the people I love. I love those people. But I can't possibly love them without also being angry that they separated themselves from me and they want to be God and they don't want to have anything to do with me. So God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sends his own son to do what? To drink the cup of wrath that was meant for me and for you. It's incredible. You couldn't have possibly imagined something more loving than what God himself has accomplished. He would rather die than live without you. Paul says it this way in Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered over to death to wrath, to separation because of our sins. And he was raised from the dead to make us right with God. So two treasures here. You read the passage and you say to yourself, 
No one would make this up. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't draw any followers to write these ten verses about the leaders and the leader of the early church. So it must have happened. The Bible is authentic. The second thing that you come in when you come into the garden is you see the need for the wrath of God if you're going to have a loving God. One final treasure I want to point out here. And I want to go back to the Lane quote, one sentence here. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. That's, that's what he's doing in the garden. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He, he told Judas that in the upper room. And he comes for an interlude, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him. You know, all the other times Jesus comes to the Father, what does he find? Heaven. Heaven opens up. Remember at his baptism? He comes up out of the water and what happens? Heaven opens up. And the Spirit, like a dove, descends on Christ. When he's at the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? Heaven opens up. And the voice comes from heaven. This is my son. Now he's in this garden. He's in the garden for maybe less than one hour. He's in his greatest time of need. He comes looking for comfort from his dad. His dad from whom all things are possible. And he finds hell instead of heaven open up before him. Jesus, longing for words of encouragement from his dad, gets silence. Jesus, looking just for one moment of intimacy, feels abandoned. We have to admit that this is a disturbing encounter. And I know that none of us are going to experience this exactly because we're not carrying the weight that Jesus is going to carry. But some of us, and I want to speak very carefully and tenderly here, not, not, maybe not a lot of us, but some of us, Understand the loneliness and desperation of this prayer. You have come to God. You have come with circumstances or events in your life that make no sense. They're completely unjustified. You come over and over and over again and you're crying out, Dad, you can remove this cup. Take this away. Silence. No intimacy. No words of encouragement. Abandonment. 
You come hoping for some little slice of heaven to sort of keep you moving forward in what seems to open up in the, in the most intimate time that you need heaven, hell seems to be cracking open in front of your feet Job says this, when I hoped for good, evil came when I looked for light, then came darkness, the churning inside me never stops some of us have felt that kind of silence and that kind of abandonment. I have felt that. And when I have felt that, I have asked these questions. What do I do when I come looking for intimacy and I get abandonment? What do I do when I come hoping for, he- hoping for heaven and I get hell? And I found comfort in this garden. I found comfort in two ways. One, Jesus doesn't deny his feelings. There's no kind of verse in here that says, just suck it up. I mean, sort of get over it. No, Jesus is pouring out all of his emotions at this point. Even though there's silence. And I got help here because I see that Jesus doesn't get stuck in this garden. Verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. So without any encouragement from his father, no audible encouragement anyway, without any encouragement from his three closest friends, they're all asleep. Somehow, Jesus is able to move forward into darkness. I think the help comes from verse 41. He comes back for a third time. Are you still sleeping? Still taking your rest? And then Mark uses this quirky little phrase. It's only found in Mark. Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come. And the Greek idea behind this word indicates that something has been settled. Christ comes back. He sees his betrayer coming in the distance. And he looks at his disciples and says, it's been settled. What's been settled? What's enough? I kept wrestling with this all week. When I get to those points and I have deep desperation, when I get silence instead of a word, when I get hell instead of heaven, what's enough? What gets settled right here? How can I get some help? And here, and I want you to listen carefully, is what I think gets settled. Jesus settles right here in this garden that God's word is going to triumph over his own will and emotions. There's a battle here. 
A tremendous battle. And something's going to win out. What I want, what I demand, what my words say, what the world tells me is right, that's going to win out, or is God's Word going to win out? If you haven't been to that place, you're going to get to that place at some point. And Jesus Christ comes into a garden and he says, I've settled it. No matter what my will is, no matter what my emotions are telling me, I will follow God's word and I will follow his word alone. Verse 36 is where you see it. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I completely trust in your power. Please remove this cup. This is what I want. Long pause. This is the battle right here. And what gets settled? Yep. Not what I want. What you want. I refuse to be guided by the words of this world. I refuse to be guided by the words in my own mind. I refuse to be guided by my emotions. I will be guided by your word alone. William Lane says this one more time. Listen carefully. Only after the resurrection did the significance of the transaction concluded in the garden become clear. Just as rebellion against God's word in another garden brought death to man, Jesus' submission in Gethsemane reversed the pattern of rebellion and set in motion a sequence of events which will defeat death itself. What happened in another garden? Do you remember? The first Adam came into the garden, and what won out? His emotions. His will. His word won out over God's word. And did he get life? No. Jesus comes into the garden of Gethsemane to settle something. And this is especially important for those who live in terrible silence or emotional turmoil. Those who feel like hell is breaking loose, they are staggering under the circumstances of their life. What must be settled, what you can get hope from in this passage is to trust in God's Word. Not your will, not your emotions, not in the words of the world, but in God's Word. God's Word is enough. You intended harm for me, but God intended it for good. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not on your own understanding. And we know, we know, we know, we know all things. In all things, God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see this in Mark. Let me just close here. Hell is just about ready to break loose. The betrayer comes. The armies are surrounding him. Peter himself is going to pull out a sword. Everything's unwinding. And what do you see Jesus saying? He speaks very few words after this point in the Gospel of Mark. He looks around and he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. The only other two places that Jesus speaks in Mark, he quotes Bible verses. And the last one is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When hell is breaking loose in your life, trust in God. Trust in his word. We know. Not in some things God is recapturing, but in all things. Even the death of His own Son. All things are all working together for God's glory and for your good. You have to trust in that word. That word can lead you into greater darkness, greater pain, greater silence. And it can lead you through those things. It's only appropriate that we finish the sermon with the most paralyzing meal you ever take. Jesus comes, and when it doesn't seem to make any sense, and there's no justice, he says, take, this is my body. It's for you. You you need to remember that I'm in control, even if it doesn't look like it. That I'm with you. Even when it doesn't feel like it. That you can trust in my word even when it's against your word. And he who knew no sin took our sin and he looked into the cup and he didn't walk away. Because when he looked into the cup, 
He not only saw the wrath of God. He saw his love for you. For those who've trusted in Christ. This is your table. For those who are staggering. Stagger forward. Let's pray. Lord, what has happened in the garden and what happens at this meal is something that human words are inadequately inadequate to describe. And so I'm praying now for your Holy Spirit to quicken us to the realities of your word. The truth of your word. And sustain us in this meal in a way that nothing else could sustain us. Lord, I pray for those few people that even right now are dealing with your silence. May they know you're in control. All things are working together. What men may mean for evil, you will turn out for good. In Jesus' name, amen. The elders will come forward. You take a piece of bread. And my prayer is that as you dip the bread into the cup, you'll think of the cup of God's wrath. Equaled by the cup of his mercy. When you're prepared, you come forward.